Let's do it. Let's do it. Broadcasting from around the world, you're listening to The First 100, a podcast on how founders acquired their first 100 paying customers. Here's your host, Hadi Rodwan. Good to have you on the show, Dan. How are you doing today? I'm doing absolutely well, Hadi. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you for joining uh, the podcast. Uh, a quick introduction for our listeners. Dan Raju is the CEO of Tradier, an essential infrastructure fabric that powers over 250 investing platforms globally and serves most of the active traders in the market. Essentially, you are a brokerage as a service and you are backing a lot of platform providers, digital advisors, robot developers. You're, you're in the back end. I think you're well known for your APIs as well. So you've raised 30.7 million from notable investors. Then take us back to the founding aha moment. How did Tradier come into fruition? So if I'm to follow your question, so see the idea of Tradier is fairly simple. I mean, the core team which started Tradier had a very simple mission. The simple mission was to use API-based technologies to serve the more active trading market. The idea was we felt personally that if you take a look at the U.S. market today, there are over 115 plus million unique brokerage accounts and that are funded. And we felt like about... The 60 plus million of them who basically used to place very few trades or continue to place zero to three trades, there's quite a bit of hype and focus on that market, particularly when the markets were doing extremely well, but felt like the more active trader, the trader who got up in the morning and placed the trades, learned the market, educated himself, subscribed for content, and played an active role to keep these retail markets growing, that the market had lost focus on them. So we wanted to build a true product that addresses what that customer needs. And we felt the customer needs just a few important things. The customer needs choice, number one. And the customer needs, number two, is value. And the customer needs service. And so what we wanted to build a business that's focused largely around that. So today we are one of the, if not the fastest growing, what we call as company focus on active traders. And we provide that in a very unique way. That unique approach to providing that has helped us build a business model that is extremely profitable, extremely fast growing, and takes care of a segment that is producing about 80% of the market volume. So very fortunate to have focused on it and very fortunate to have built a product that so many of our customers like today. How did you identify early point that this is a pain point? Because as you said today, you've built a moat. You have a strategy where you have a big market share. So originally, how did you find out that this is something that would work? Any tactics, frameworks, strategies that you deployed early on? See, a big believer of a very simple principle and that you need to build uh, as an entrepreneur, a big believer that you need to focus on a segment and you need to get to critical mass with the lowest capital, right? That's the key is to find a segment when you're building a business, address the needs of that segment very specifically. And that's the mousetrap that will get you to scale. At that point of time, you can start serving a larger market. I think most firms will try to go ahead and 
let's say I'm going after a $5 billion market on day one, would rarely pull that off. So was a big believer that you need to start focused, you need to start meaningful, you need to start with a very clear business model. Big believer in that principle, just as an entrepreneur. And what we had seen, we found that opportunity. If you basically think about the market over the last five, six years, the entire market was focused on the millennial market, right? Everybody's focused on that. The idea was that you couldn't take two steps uh, either in New York or San Francisco without hearing the word millennials, right? And we found potential, but sometimes struggled to find the proof points based upon which these firms were basically focusing on that segment. For us, a segment that made sense was the folks who got up in the morning and did the hard work. And those are the traders who get up in the morning where the markets are doing good or not doing good, would get up, place their trades, make their money. And that was, they were in it for the long haul versus the first time investors were going in and out of the market. So we found that that market that was so valuable that generated you know, 70, 80% of the revenues in the market were looking for a few things. And first thing is we saw that all traditional brokerage firms were offering them one front end. So, so if you think about it, you go to a brokerage firm, he'll give you an app or a front end, and you go in and play trades. And so felt like the more active you get, the more time you spend in the market, that one size fits all is never going to work for you. And so we felt like they asked. So that's when APIs became crucial. We wanted to kind of crowdsource the creation of that functionality. So we found for that market, found an amazing what we call as a technology match that will generate the, the very interesting and more important thing they cared about. The second thing that we saw that they cared about is value. And, and I think sometimes value is lost in the conversation of zero commissions in this business, right? The zero commission conversation had taken over the world, but our customers very honestly cared about commissions. They didn't care to a point where that was the main thing they were looking for. So we, even in those tough times, we offered a competitive price, but offered a price that people felt like they were getting a value for. So kind of never fell into the zero commission mousetrap for the most valuable derivative products that generating. So the second, that's how we created value. And, and, it, and we became a viable business model today. When everybody's struggling, we continue to boom and grow because of the hard choices we made. And third thing, if you give brokerage firm your hard-earned money, you want to pick up the phone, call them, and know where things are. This whole idea that you're going to tweet about it or send a private message or a DM and a firm would answer was that tenure was not going to be long run. When people got serious with the money, then that will become an issue. So we, from day one, we started providing the ability for traders to call. So we traders to call, get service, and, and we were there with them. So that amount of what we call as service value and choice focus, we found that would be extremely good to the customers. And we build a product. Products like these take longer to build. Right, The network effect of something like this takes longer. At the end of the day, you end up as a much stronger firm. So that's the reason why today, well, much or most of the competition who neither focus on the right segment or generated a lot of capital and have incurred so much debt, and there is a venture pressure to grow, and, and plus at the same time, the, and the millennials have kind of tapered off from the market a little bit. Do they struggle while firms like us who made those hard choices? So then the key, I will basically say anybody who's starting... There is a long-term price paid for a for a short-term hype. And every time you get lost in a short-term hype, you'll have a long-term price. You'll have a long-term issue. So 
Yeah, so that was kind of what it is. And fortunate that we made the right choices and we had a good team of investors and also a core technology and management team who supported that process. And there you go. Amazing story. So as all of these brands are starting, they, their brand is not known. And also when you're entering a space where an acronym like APIs might not be well known at the beginning, how did you convince your first few customers to actually believe in you and pay you to use your service? That's a great question. In fact, one of the most interesting and more important things that I always said internally and the team also believed was we were offering an API, but the customers are not coming to you for an API. The customers are coming to you for a partnership. And so we always knew that as much as we spoke about the API and its functionality, what we did that most other people could not do that well was we were focused on partnership. And I, I'm proud to say that after 250 partners, we hardly lost even uh, six or seven of them over the last 10 years, right? So very, very partner-driven focus, right? And so today we process, you know, somewhere between one and 2% of the U.S. retail market in terms of size, but it's all based upon a simple element that it's about the partnership. So what we were selling to our partners was not an API. And so we never had the burden to actually have having them to explain an API. So here's a great example. When we started the firm, if you take a look at some of the initial uh, pitches I did, we were calling ourselves the, the first brokerage API in the country. It meant nothing for our customers. Okay, it's like you were claiming a mantle that just didn't matter to them. So but very soon we learned that it's all about partnerships. So as we translated the business from while being technology-centric, being partner-focused, I think that made a difference. So we never had the burden of basically having to explain the API that much. We just had to explain the partnership. Now, to the first part of your question, how do you grow a brand, right? How do you actually grow a brand in these kind of situations where the product that you offer is by default very technical? How do you build a brand around something that does not have mass appeal, right? So by default, does not have mass appeal. And to be very honest, we struggled with that in the early stages. We struggled with that quite early, but but we figured something out that was very, very important. What we had basically figured out was that our partners are going to be our evangelists. So we had quickly learned that it's, the U.S. retail trading market is one of the oldest markets in the world. It's not. So a very, very legacy filled with some of the biggest deep pockets of Wall Street. How do you create a name for yourself in that market? It is very, very simple. And that is, if you can convince enough partners to be your evangelists, they will get you to your critical mass of brand awareness. So our first 20, 30 customers or partners or API, B2B partners, were our biggest evangelists. The company then evolved quickly to saying, hey, we are enabling you. And to today, we are gradually evolving the company into saying, we are just not providing an API and a partnership today. We are actually going to become a platform for them to grow in the true sense of partnership. So as a part of that, you know, we're soon going to announce, I think I already spoke about this at, at some locations, but we are now offering our first, uh, what we call as a platform called the hub, where people can publish their platforms. It's a live and education channel that runs all day. It's all about offering choice and value and education to the customers. So, yeah, to answer your question, how do you build brand value? Number one is in a B2B environment, if your partners are almost like passionately your believers in you, 
you have an immense influencer-based network effect that lever get created. And once you get to critical mass, it makes your brand building exercise so much more easier. So that's what we did. So we started the firm in 2013, built the product for a few years, got the first 50 to 60 partners, enabled them to become our evangelists. And today we are coming to a point where 30% of the accounts that we get are not even from our partners. They come directly to Tradio today. That's our story from evolving from an API that is partner-centric to a B2B network effect to having a B2C presence all in a span of uh, the last four or five years. So, This is amazing. So basically, you're deploying a B2B2C strategy where your partners are actually driving your product and making sure there's mm. the proper adoption rate. If we go back to your early 50, which you were mentioning right now, how did you find them? Where did you find them? And how did you convince them as well to use them? Was it more price-driven? Was it more value-driven? How did you adopt that market share spike at the beginning? Yeah, I see. Early stages, it's always a hustle. It's a hustle. It's a hustle like there's no tomorrow. So that's all we did. I'm just being really simple. The first 15 to 20 customers were purely a hustle. It's a hustle to reach them. It's a hustle to able to communicate with them. And it's a hustle to prove that you're creating value for them. You pulled that stage off and then your partners are going to be your best evangelists. When they trust you, that you get up in the morning and you always do the right thing. In fact, if you come to our Charlotte office and many of my earlier stuff, we, our, the goal of the company has been always do the right thing. So if your partners trust you that no matter what, you'll always do the right thing and you're there for them and you're letting them build a great product while you're creating value, you'll always succeed. Now, I don't think there's a shortcut. I think I always tell startups basically saying, there is no shortcut. You need to hustle from day one. When hustling becomes your habit, in order to get clients, customers get attracted towards your passion for to serve them. And eventually, I think your life becomes more easier. Is there any strategy that you've deployed early on that's not scalable, but you had to do it? And now as you become bigger, you can no longer do it. I mean, a couple of things. When you're small, you do a lot of what we call as you, you focus it on the customer and you're still learning the customer. So, for example, I was a CEO and I used to place half the customer, you know, calls to reach out to the partners, right? So as you grow in size, you're going after, you know, tens of customers every day that that's not scalable. And now we've got people who are much smarter than I am who can do that job much better than I can who are doing it today. So that's an example of how in, what you do in the early stages. Another example, <laughs> another example that you do is everybody does everything when we were small. I mean, literally, I used to do everything all the way from, uh, you know, I hate to say this, but I, I used to do all the way from selling in the morning to writing uh, social blog posts in the afternoon to running payroll in the evening. You do everything. But that's when you learn. That's when you learn your business. I mean, just because you started, it doesn't mean you, you know your business. But when you put get your hands dirty, you learn. So, yeah, so we did a lot of that stuff in the early stages and we kept the cost very low. So we kept the cost low, low, particularly in the financial services industry where everything costs more and takes more time. We were able to do that. And I put all this into being smart and meaningful. And uh, in the early stages, you always come out on the top. Uh, and one of the one good thing that we did <laughs> that is that we never got lost in the venture hype. Never got lost as a business. We personally felt like there is a segment of the venture industry that understood what we do, 
But there's going to be the generic investment firms that basically may or may not understand what we do and never, never got into the habit nor the rush to uh, try to prove on a set of KPIs that made sense to them. But when I shut the door in the evening, didn't make any sense to us. So I always decided to focus on KPIs that made sense to the customer and not to the not to a venture firm, fund in order to raise money. So we had the luxury and we had some existing investors um, like F Prime and KF and all of these guys who were willing to stand behind us uh, in, in those terms. But yeah, so made some good choices. It all comes down to hard work. So there's nothing, there's no other shortcut to that. What has been the most challenging part in your entrepreneurial journey? So for us, and for us as a team, the most satisfying, I mean, yet the most challenging thing for us was while there was so much pressure to focus on everything that was fancy and rosy, that a lot of these startups and heavily venture-funded companies were going towards, it was important for us to be able to focus on the, that most important thing, and that's the customer, and that's the active trader. You know, hindsight, we spend a lot of time and a lot of energy focusing on that market segment, and that helped us, right? While at that point of time, even though there was quite a bit of distractions and people were questioning if we were fo- our myopic focus was the right thing to do. So to hindsight, looking back at it today, I think while that was the most challenging, that was the best decision we ever made was to focus on what we started the journey for. Amazing. One last question then. What's next for Trade Year? We raised a substantial round uh, just a few weeks ago. Our focus is really, really this simple at this point of time is sticking to the journey that has got us here and that has got us the growth and that has got us the success. And our customers are demanding. What are they demanding? They are demanding Tradier to just not provide them an API and a partnership, but they want Tradier to be a platform where they want to participate in. So the next phase of the Tradier journey is to launch that platform. We're calling that the hub where partners can engage present themselves and deliver their services in one central location where customers can reach. So for the first time, our partners that we rely so much on, while they basically know how to grow their business, we are becoming an extra arm for them to grow their business. So that's the next stage of the journey. At the same time, I think we are going to be focused on launching some advanced capabilities for the changing market. And what that is, is that we're going to be offering portfolio margin that people can trade at the portfolio level. At the same time, we're going to be launching futures and we are carefully watching the crypto market. And I think once the market becomes a little bit more clear, you know, I think we will try to actually launch a very, very innovative crypto product too. So it's mostly focused around the partners and a partner-centric platform called the hub and futures and followed by crypto and portfolio margin. Amazing. Thank you for stopping by the podcast. We enjoyed this episode with you full of insights. How can people reach you? It's fairly simple. You go to www.tradier.com. You can reach out. If you send a note saying you want to talk to Dan, I'm sure service will get hold of me. But yeah, but going to www.tradier.com is probably the best way to get hold of uh, me and the company. Thank you, Dan. And wish you the best of luck with your venture. Oh, I, I enjoyed the conversation, Heidi. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much for listening to The First 100. We hope it inspired you in your journey. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe to our podcast on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify, and share it with a friend starting their entrepreneurship journey. Leave us a five-star review. Your support will help spread our podcast to more viewers. 